This is Hacker Public Radio episode 3163 for Wednesday the 16th of September 2020. Today's show is entitled Linux in Laws Season 1 Episode 13 The Road to Communism and Freedom and is part of the series Linux in Laws. It is hosted by Monochromec and is about 64 minutes long and carries an explicit flag. The summary is, our old heroes discuss their legacy and how they arrived at open-source software and communism. This episode of HPR is brought to you by Archive.org. Support universal access to all knowledge by heading over to archive.org forward slash donate. Linux in Laws, a podcast on topics around free and open source software, any associated contraband, communism, the revolution in general, and whatever else fancies your tickle. Please note that this and other episodes may contain strong language, offensive humor, and other certainly not politically correct language. You have been warned. Our parents insisted on this disclaimer. Happy mum! Thus, the content is not suitable for consumption in the workplace, especially when played back on a speaker in an open plan office or similar environments. Any minors under the age of 35 or any pets, including fluffy little killer bunnies, your trusted guide dog, unless on speed, and cute T-Rexes or other associated dinosaurs. This is... Linux in Laws, Season 1, Episode 13, The Way to Communism and Freedom. Martin, how are things? Hey, Chris, things are great, if slightly warm. How, how come? Have oh, you uh, uh, unlike the usual UK summer, the, the, the weather has decided to do something odd, which is called heat, <laughs> which we don't see very often here, but it is, yeah, um, slightly melting. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, it's same here, actually. We're looking about 40 degrees, I suppose, uh, on a good day. On a bad day, it's more like 30-something, but that's okay, I suppose, given um, the uh, current climate change we're experiencing, never mind the pandemic. But let's not talk about this. Um, before we come to our main subject, which is the road to communism and freedom in general, and yes, we of course, we are talking about open source, let's do some news. What do we have in store, Martin? Well, I have a news item, um, which is uh, related to our uh, topic, in fact, which is that um, uh, Have I Been Pawned is going open source as well soon. I read this, yes. Hmm. So, I mean, this is obviously something that uh, a number of companies have done. A main example in my history being uh, Pivotal, which when it was formed, open sourced all their VMware products like Gemfire and hmm. Greenplum, etc, etc. So it, uh, yeah, um, it looks like many people are seeing the benefits of this model. I reckon in this particular case, basically, it boiled down to the fact that he tried to think about uh, monitorizing this, as in kind of putting a business model around this, but failed to do so, and finally came to the conclusion that, uh, because apparently he was close to burnout or something, at least that is my perception reading uh, bits and pieces about it, at least he came to the conclusion that he cannot do this alone anymore, and this is the more or less the primary reason that's put it this way. 
why he decided to go public with this in terms of open sourcing it. Yeah, yeah, this BDFL model is, seems to have seemed to be uh, unadopted for a number of projects in the, <laughs> in the recent history, hasn't it? Um, a certain NoSQL database comes to mind. Yes, yes, um, our friend, our great friend Salvatore, has also done the same. Um, um, for for those few remaining listeners who do not know who, what we're talking about, full disclosure, um, we use we both used to work for Redis Labs. I'm still working there. Martin has decided to de to defect to a closed source company. I hope Martin can live with the pain, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> as we... open source components, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So uh, essentially what they do is, uh, I can say this, right, Martin, we can still cut it you out can, later, yeah, maybe, yes, maybe yes. not. Apparently what they do is, which is, I think, uh, when I'm looking at the website, the tech stack seems to be pretty cool. Um, they are taking uh, open source components and wrapping this in a, in a proprietary software package. Essentially the idea is to put parts of a Postgres engine onto a GPU architecture, which is way cool, I might add, and probably the way to go to, uh, forward with regards to beating the last bit of performance out of a database architecture. Uh, the trouble is basically, it's a closed source company, um, but hey, this is it. Maybe uh, Richard and friends will come finally to terms with it and kind of open source the whole company. And I'm sure that Redis Labs or some other company will be more than game to make an offer. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> not. Full, dis full, full disclosure, this is pure belief. This has, mm. no, this has no commercial background. I'll, I'll, I'll this is pure speculation, people. I'll give you a quote from, uh, from today, um, specifically relevant to this topic. Is that, uh, Only yeah, what you uh, can disclose, I, Martin. In, in memory <laughs> database is going to be obsolete in the near future. <laughs> 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 GPU databases will obviously overtake them. So, uh, maybe. People, the <laughs> emphasis is on maybe, not will be. There's a difference. <laughs> <laughs> so let's see. Anyway, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, do I have any anything of yes? Of, what about of your news? news? Sorry. I, as a matter of fact, I don't have any apart from the heat wave. Okay. Um, and not the D wave. No. Okay. Not, not D wave. <laughs> just heat wave. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And of course, yes. Emacs twenty-seven point something will have improved font support. Okay. Um, yes. That hit just the news Emacs yesterday. The yes. Out there. Exactly. Um, exactly. All five exactly. of them. And of course, half bus, which is the underlying library, uh, will only really shine on GUI systems, as in graphical user interface. Uh, of course, hardcore Emacs users don't use graphical user interfaces because mm -hmm. they are diehards living by the command line. So this is a bit of a contradiction in terms, I suppose. Uh, yes. For the for the hipsters out there, fair enough. With version 27, you can look forward to improved the font support, but to the rest of us oldies and kind of <laughs> uh, old people, let's put it this way, there's no point in denying this, uh, it'll be business as usual with regards to this particular font green support and white, aspect. Is it? <laughs> yes, it's actually, yes, green on black or black yeah. on white or um, amber on amber, black yes, if you're so inclined. Who needs colors here? Yeah. Indeed, who needs colors? <laughs> um, there's okay. a recent, I kind of call it coming across a recent survey about what, a couple of months ago, that apparently X point something percent of the male IT population, as in people doing IT for a living, like programmers, architects, and so forth, are colorblind anyway. So it doesn't make a so it doesn't make a difference. Well, Who cares? Are, are they colorblind before they started in IT, or is that as yes. a result? Mm. Yes, as we probably all know, is more or less a hereditary disease, so there's no real choice in the matter. There's uh, some certain statistical manipulation going on here, I'm sure. But, uh, Nothing that can be fi that can't be fixed, Martin. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, okay, if we're done with the news, let's the move news. on to our own, to our main topic, which is, of course, the road to communism. And let me shed some more light on Ooh, this. Oh, wait, yes. wait, 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 sorry, on. yes. There is more important news. The more important news is that we are on Google Podcasts. Yes, 
Martin, thank you. The most After important. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, we're recording this on the 11th of December August. 2037 <laughs> or something. <laughs> Yes, after about a delay of about, what, 20 years, make that actually, sorry, 17 <laughs> years, Google has finally decided to accept us into the podcast realm. <laughs> uh, no, jokes aside, if Google, if you're listening, fair enough, it took some time, but you finally got around. I appreciate the the great effort your crawling bots have put into this. Fully appreciate it, don't get me wrong. Um, it only took um, so much time to, pro to, to put up a proper RSS feed and a small hit. You mean little time, surely? Sorry, little time, yes, small time, whatever. <laughs> Long day. And, and Google, um, if you are listening to this, um, there's certainly room for improvement on your website, but more on this during the pox of the week. Excellent. Another teaser, yes. Okay, um, back to communism and the road to it. Uh, the following th six hours, 30 minutes <laughs> and seven seconds will be spent on two OAPs, and of course OAP standing for Old Aged Pensioners, or Old Aged Pensioners, whatever they call in the UK, anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, um, well, I don't, I don't know about you, but I'm still working for a living, so I'm definitely not a pensioner. You probably have to do that for the rest of your life, no? <laughs> Maybe not. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, uh, sorry, yes, we, we, we are digressing. Um, yes, the idea is oh, basically like to, to shed some... In our terminology. <laughs> <laughs> the idea is basically to explain a little bit uh, about how we arrived, not just at open source, but maybe also to some extent explain why we do this podcast, um, for want of a better... Uh, explanation of this. Um, so, Martin, why don't you get us started? Yes, okay, sure. So, the road to open source. Hmm. Um, now, road to open source for me was really um, purely uh, coincidental, as in a non-conscious um, uh, decision like yourself, I expect. <laughs> um, since my background is uh has been in closed source for many 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 years and full uh, full disclosure martin used to work for oracle only only very briefly when <laughs> it was still a nice company yeah. um, oh you worked there for two months excellent <laughs> <laughs> slightly long but this, this is way back in oh, 1990 even before that oh, uh, too long ago in fact but yes it was still a nice company back then and in fact I should have bought some shares at the time but I didn't so it's <laughs> these things um, yes so okay so closed source fine um, and for me the road to open source was really around uh, I mean, obviously, everybody um, started to use Linux in more anger as its uh, main open source component, right? Now, that was probably the first thing that most people in IT came uh, into contact with in terms of open source. Um, for myself, obviously, being in the particularly in the database arena, um, that was my introduction to open source, right? And that was around 1992? <laughs> uh, no, no, strangely enough, um, the, uh, uh, the organizations of the world were all very happily buying closed source software, um, mainly because of its um, status, reliability, uh, support, etc. Where, uh, you know, people in Sandals that wrote a few lines of code in their basements were frowned upon in those days. So when did you use for, uh, when did when when did you first use Emacs? And don't say yesterday because that doesn't count. Uh, I think that would be never. <laughs> I'm a long-standing <laughs> VI user. <laughs> okay, uh, given the fact that VI is open source as well, when did you first use uh, that? What's it called again? It's not an editor. It's something. It's something. It's something more. Uh, it's it's many great things. Yeah. <laughs> what's what I'm looking for? I don't um, know. Sorry, no, no, stream editor is taken by SED, but... <laughs> um, 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 tool, yeah, let's put it this way. Um, mm. Yeah, good, the, good, yes. when did you start to use ED's successor called VI? <laughs> yes, you had to um, switch 
the the editor in those days, didn't you? Mm, indeed, because the default editor was ED. Strangely <laughs> so enough. Um, uh, I, I'm sorry, Martin. Just wondering, was there any paper tape involved? No, 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 no. no sorry, surely VI is post paper tape. You straight went to TTYs, as in teletypes. No, no, no. <laughs> At university, obviously, I used paper, um, but um, uh, that was more deck. Um, you used paper. I thought you were. I thought you were younger than than I am. Well, I guess my university was a little bit underfunded, so they couldn't afford too many terminals. <laughs> you used paper tape at uni? Mm -hmm. Are you serious? Yeah. That well, I mean, uh, in a way, that's that's good learning experience. Uh, come on, you went to uni, what, late 80s, early 90s? Yes, no, no, yeah, late 80s or mid 80s. Really. And that was in Africa or still in the Netherlands? <laughs> In the Netherlands, in the Netherlands. Um, <laughs> well, Sorry, yes. Is that, um, Full disclosure, uh, Martin went to a university in a Dutch colony in Africa. We just found this out. <laughs> uh, let me think. No, I don't think we have any African colonies. We have... We have uh, Are you uh, sure? Colonies in the Indies <laughs> and in, uh, one in South America. Um, but, um, yeah. There's still this there kind of islands. hidden gem mm. in Africa mm. that really nobody talks about because... Let's not talk about this. Anyway, <laughs> but you went to university in the Netherlands to mm. a Dutch university. Can you disclose the name? Yeah, uh, well, Universiteit Twente, of course. Um, Twente used paper tapes in the in, in, in the late 80s. Are you joking me? Yeah, this could have been the museum, but um, it, it may have just been a, a quick exercise. So for our, our lab work, we used to use the um, the paper terminals instead. And you did labs in the museum, okay? <laughs> no, no, no. This was uh, a cold data center. Yeah. In a museum. With lots, of space, <laughs> with lots of space in it as well, which is um, considering today's data center. Twente, yes. Twente, yeah. had a, Twente had a data lab in a museum. Okay, please elaborate. <laughs> well, it's... Um, anyway, sorry. Let's go fa back to my fun fact before. Um, <laughs> uh, Apparently, being, being, Martin um, can't really um, talk about this. <laughs> considered an OAP. Um yeah, so fun fact is that um, I think we started with 150 students the first year, and I think after the first um, semester, the year of semesters or trimesters. Mm. Anyway, after the first term, um, there were about oh, uh, less than half left, and after the first year, there was probably only about 25 of us, <laughs> um, which was kind of curious. Late um, 80s, computers are in, mm -hmm. in the Netherlands, okay. Yes, um, yes. Given the fact yeah. that given the fact that Amsterdam now Amsterdam. is to be considered a digital hub of Europe, I'm just wondering where this came from. Yes, no. So, so did, uh, technical hub. I mean, this is all about the fundamentals of computer science, right? You don't have to have all the latest technology to become a computer scientist. It's all zeros and ones at the end of the day. <laughs> there well, we are. Fun, fun fact for. <laughs> Fun fact, Martin. Um, Unless you're using a quantum computer, of course. Um, <laughs> they didn't have those in those days. There's so. at least mm. two big exchanges in Europe, as in internet exchanges, as in peering points, as in major peering mm. points. One of them mm -hmm. is about 10, sorry, make that actually four miles south of where I'm living in Frankfurt. And the other uh -huh. one is in the Netherlands. Mm. And you're talking terabits of data here. Mm-hmm. Never mind these cool hipsters in Amsterdam that have been telling me for the last 20 years what of uh, uh, what to do in terms of the next digital wave. So uh, the Netherlands certainly has a reputation for being quite digital. Maybe that just developed in the 90s, but... Well, we are quite an advanced country, but, um, um, you know, to, un uh, uh, to, to learn something, it's quite useful to understand all the basics, right? I see. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't full disclosure. I didn't want to put Martin on the spot. Now, don't get me wrong. Um, but I'm no, just you curious. Haven't succeeded anyway. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah so, hmm, um, I mean, uh, to be fair, this university is right next to the German border, so they, that may have something to do with it. I suppose. Uh, <laughs> I can recall twenty to be twenty to be quite an advanced school. In terms of in terms of uh, natural sciences, and 
never mind computer science. Of course, computer science is not a natural science. Goes without saying. Well, it had a. Um, uh, it's it's uh, okay. So in the Netherlands, there are three technical universities, right? There is uh, Groningen, there's Delft, and there's Twente. And um, what about Amsterdam? That's not a technical university. Tannenbaum t taught there. Yeah, but as as a university as such, it's okay. more known for its other subjects than. So, you know, the likes of the uh, Twente, Delta, Groningen, they specialize in maths, in science, uh, sorry, um, in math, in physics, in um, computer science. Uh, they had one uh, business studies study, and that was it, right? It's, it's all um, focused on that. Whereas at your Amsterdam's, you'll get uh, psychology, philosophy, languages, all that kind of nonsense. Um, and th that's what those universities are better known for as your technical universities you know okay. specific on those topics so you get a lot of nerds together basically <laughs> i see interesting okay hmm. and what about your own university experience <sighs> um it's been a while okay to cut a long story short i went to in ireland they call this regional technic college um it's not a university, right. it's rather a more practically oriented school. Yeah, it would be called a polytechnic. Polytechnics, yes, in the UK. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. uh, because at the time I had the impression I wouldn't survive a couple of, of, of semesters at, at uni, so I went to that polytech straight away with the idea of maybe doing a master's after my bachelor um, if I mm -hmm. felt like it. So the school I went to, in American terms, uh, of course, the Polytechnic, um, is called Fulda. And this is basically where I got my first exposure to open source. Um, well, not necessarily, well, to some extent, let's put it this way. Um, but also, much more importantly, to something called Unix. And we are going back around 35 years, give or take, because... I managed to hold on the first system administrator job around 86. Mm -hmm. um, and then it all went downhill afterwards. The school decided to buy something called an RTPC 60, uh, 6150, which was the first 6150 in Germany. Um, sorry, <laughs> it's been a while. Um, the 6150 used to be the first commercially available risk architecture on a PC platform from IBM running AIX of sorts. AIX, yeah. Yes, and I was the system administrator of the first German import on that machine. So me and Unix go back about 35 years, give or take. Mm, okay. And even while I was uni at university, um, I s always kind of did jobs that involved Unix or some related operating systems in one fashion or another. Um, for example, I did a couple of stints at um, companies including Philips, probably known for the bulbs, hmm. being a Dutch company, um, and Philips Communication Industries, all the rage before they were bought by Alcatel, I think, in the late 80s. <clears throat> had a major subsidiary down in Nuremberg and this is basically where I did a stint programming IS, no, it wasn't ISDN device drivers it was communication board device drivers for Linux kernels and funny enough um, that was my first major exposure to open source in terms of running open source on a proprietary Linux system on a proprietary Unix system rather which was Solaris mm -hmm. Then mm. a spin mm. of BSD, and uh, I was looking for some sort of editor, and in 87, I came across something called Emacs. So I pulled down the source code, to my amazement, it then compiled on Solaris. I can't even remember the version that it was, <laughs> probably more like 4.1 or something, I don't know, mm. which was close to a BSD system. Um, it compiled out of the box. I didn't have to do much tweaking. And then I had a version of Emacs running on, in, in my account, uh, compiled with a proprietary C compiler, but it worked out of the box more or less. What was the um, 
the editor of choice on Solaris in those days. I can't remember. It was probably VI or something. I don't know. Hmm. Hmm. Obviously too complicated then. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> was that the reason for Emacs? <laughs> uh, yeah, probably, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you see, uh, yes, VI has its advantage, let's put it this way, but um, Emacs just, it's just a better approach at editing text. Um, VI has a smaller footprint read, but uh, even Vim and friends are okay, let's put it this way. I mean, I know my way around VI, but I was, at the time I was looking, so I was looking for something much more powerful. Hence, I came across Emacs, and uh, given the fact that, mm, that okay. VI was part of the Solaris distribution, mm. um, Emacs wasn't, as far as I can recall, um, I put sim I simply put down the source code, ran the install script, more or less. And given the fact that there wasn't an internet around as we know it back mm, in the late yeah, 80s. Yeah, where did you pull the source code down from? <laughs> I think it was UNet or something. I can't even recall. Uh, um, yeah. It all basically worked out of the box without without many without many 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 uh, tweak without much tweaking to be done. Let's mm -hmm. put it this way. The next thing, of course, then I decided to do a uh, PhD after do, after concluding my master's here at the University of Bonn. For this, I went to a school called Trinity College. It's in Dublin, as in Dublin, Ireland, hmm. um, where we developed an experimental microkernel similar to L3 and other gadgets in at that in, in 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 that area and that was the time when we came across something called linux um we're talking about 93 94 95 96 um yeah. i can recall installing a kernel version 0.9 on an intel pc 386 with I think 64 or main memory or something like this. Maybe it, it might have been more, but I was even then thoroughly impressed about the ease of installation and never mind the power you had at your disposal, even with the command line. Not, I'm not talking about a GUI now, like GNOME or, 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 or X Windows well, in general, that sort of thing. GUI anyway, right? It's an operating system. It, exactly, it's an operating system. But the one thing I discovered, you do need internet access for Linux. Because otherwise, you'll be just... I mean, guys, hmm. listeners, we are talking about the days before Slackware. The, the, the first distributions were just emerging... Configuring X11 was still a pain in the butt because you had to con you had because you had to fiddle around with mode lines and stuff. Not pleasant, but I finally got it to work mm. on an ancient 386 machine, yeah, and I was I pretty three, impressed. 386 was, I think, my first uh, Linux installation with Fedora, and I couldn't tell you what year that was. <laughs> um, it, it took a number of um, CDs, if I recall correctly. Mm. As a matter of fact, um, when we set up yeah, CDs, shop, right, yeah. yeah, CDs, yes, of course. When we set up shop, um, that was the first, I think, uh, internet-based marketing agency in Dublin at the time around 95. Um, I made a point of in importing the first Slackware CD, apparently, according to law, into Ireland. Um, so <laughs> uh, that was my kind of first commercial project with, with, uh, with Linux. And I've been using Linux ever since in, in various in, in varying capacities. Linux now drives around a hundred percent of my uh, ARM cores, which there are quite a few around. And the ones that are not using Android are using th something called Alarm, which is uh, which is of course Arch Linux for ARM. I'm an Arch package maintainer. Um, hmm. I help to establish a Linux user group in Frankfurt around 2011. The luck itself in Frankfurt dates back to early to late 90s, but it was only instantiated as a formal association in kind of 2010-2011. Sorry, um, before Martin keeps complaining, I mean 2010 of course means 2010. <laughs> I'll remember, thank you. Just in case everybody and anybody is kind of um, lost here. Um, including the Brits and stuff, I don't know. But anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, 
Uh, yes, so that's my way to open source in a nutshell. Funny enough, um, when I was doing the PhD, okay, the, my PhD was about operating systems. We're talking about, as I said, about 25 you years sure back. <coughs> Are you sure about this? Um, Positive. I thought you mentioned some, something about nurses the other day. Uh, that was before the PhD. Oh, okay. Sorry. And that yeah. wasn't on a professional <laughs> basis, I might add. And as I also said in the dialogue, this you're going to cut this out, are you? <laughs> No, I'm not. This is also subject to non disclosure as a need to know. <laughs> uh-huh. I'm sure I understand. And, <laughs> and, and if you. I mean, uh, some editing to be done. Anyway. Yes. Um, <laughs> um, What's what I'm looking for here? Uh, Martin, Martin is a potential candidate for my designated author of my auto, uh, of my biography, and before <laughs> yeah, he hasn't signed this good. agreement, there won't <laughs> be any disclosure about these facts. Very important. Well, it, does it matter? It, it does. It yes. Gets, is it, well, if it gets published after your expiry, then it doesn't matter surely. So Martin apparently to do this before. <laughs> so apparently Martin has already worked on the contract, which is going to be put on my head shortly. <laughs> I, by, by the sound of it, <laughs> nice one, killed by your co-host. Excellent, <laughs> the way we like it. <laughs> Beats wife and other sport, significant <laughs> other others by miles. <laughs> yeah. Killed by your co-host. Excellent. Uh, next next episode. <laughs> g- 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 uh, law enforcement, if you're listening to this, <laughs> if I'm not around in a couple of years' time, you know who to go after. <laughs> His name is Martin Visser, and yes, he does live in the UK. <laughs> oh, I'm sure I can make uh, make up an alibi with some fake record. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Okay, back, anyway. to, back to my PhD. Yes, sorry. Um, the idea at the time was essentially to do an operating system kernel in contrast to the budding windows and to Unix that had been around at the time for quite some time. Hmm. Um, if you take a look at the kernel architectures of, of, the, uh, of the time, you had microkernels and you had monolithic kernels. There's a beautiful argument, discussion, battle, if you will, between a guy called Andrew Tannenbaum and a guy called Linus Torvalds on Usenet in the late 90s. Hmm. Um, discussing the various merits of both approaches. Okay. Um, fun fact, um, apparently, according to lore, Linux, as in the operating system, started out as a terminal emulator for something called Minix. And Minix, of course, being the microkernel developed by Andrew Tenbaum and team. Um, so... Yeah, so, uh, sorry, before you go into that detail, uh, for those listeners amongst us, <coughs> would you like to expand uh, a, a sentence on the difference between monolithic and microkernels? Yes, no problem. Um, my, monolithic kernels have been around since, since the dawn of time. You're talking about a, monol- uh, uh, about a well, very big code base without, I'm tempted to say, much structure in terms of not uh, more or less independent entities working together to achieve a goal, but rather something monolithic in terms of not broken down into individual functionalities. Mm-hmm. In contrast to this, microkernel operating systems, like the one uh, called Windows these days, or something called Mac OS, mm-hmm. because it's Underneath the hood is macOS is essentially a FreeBSD person. Pers- <laughs> exactly, next step and next step. Claudio, two. Have you yes, yeah. <laughs> Claudio, if you're listening, yeah. it does. It wouldn't come as a surprise. No, next step as well as macOS needs to say is a uh, FreeBSD underneath the hood is a FreeBSD personality running on top of a mo- of a modified Mark microkernel and Mark being, of course, the CMU development going back to the early 90s. As in Rashid, Rick Rashid and Friends. Um, um, And uh, for the listeners interested in the details, there's a previous episode about uh, 
next steps and next step and friends detailing uh the details <laughs> of <laughs> of this approach um but suffice it to say micro kernel uh, monolithic kernels the usual suspects like unix mvs for those who care to remember it um, IBM, it? yes exactly hmm. and bs2000 from siemens Microkernels, on the other on, on the other hand, iOS, macOS, uh, Windows, but also something called VMS, done by Digital, because oh. Dave Kala and friends apparently did the first commercially available microkernel architecture in the market, going back I think to the late 80s or something. Uh, let me put yeah. this into yeah, the yeah. show notes um, because there's certainly a Wikipedia page on on this. But the idea is basically to separate concerns in a microkernel architecture um, to have individual entities working along. So, for example, you typically would have a you would have a hardware abstraction a hardware abstraction level that would take care of abstracting the hardware. On top of this, you would have processors looking after file systems, scheduling, and so forth. In a monolithic code base, you would have these functionalities are put into one code base, executing as one unified kernel. That is the main difference between microkernel and monolithic architectures. And the idea behind Tigger and Friends, which was the name of the experimental microkernel that we did at Trinity at the time, was essentially to construct a microkernel uh, that was able to adapt to application instructions or behavior at runtime. Um, if you take your typical operating system, um, you have to use as being an application what the operating system offers you. So some operating systems offer hard real-time behavior, some of them offer soft real-time behavior, some of them offer multiple processes running at one time, some of them do not do this. The early window version uh, versions come to mind where you were only able to execute a program at a given time, never mind the um, DOS operating system as issued by Microsoft, uh, late 80s, early 90s, that sort of thing, where you would simply have a command line processor no, no, that no, was... No, 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 DOS is a lot older than that. Uh, sorry, Microsoft DOS, as an MS-DOS. Yeah. Goes yeah. back to the mid-80s, I no, think. No, 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 no. I remember installing it with a bunch of floppies to DOS 1.0 when I was kind of 16 or something. So that would have been... 83? <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Nah, yeah, so... Uh, uh, I think full disclosure, yeah. Microsoft ripped this off um, uh, from a different company and yeah, they marked yeah. this off as QDOS, Quick and Dirty Operating System. Yeah. So like like some other projects that Microsoft commercialized, mm -hmm. let's put it this way. Um, IBM was looking for some software. They turned to Microsoft. Microsoft didn't have anything in stock. Um, the likes of the founders of CPM, this is my recollection, I'm old, so the details may be shady. The hmm. um, the developers of CPM, the prevailing operating system at the time, neglected, or declined rather, declined to sign an NDA, so IBM turned to Microsoft and the rest is history. Microsoft was in dire need for an operating system to be running on ATX. ADX in terms of either 8 or 16 bit uh, processors coming from Intel, yeah. the likes that IBM was just incorporating into something called the PC slash in brackets mm. XT, which was all the rage in office environments, kind of early 80s, but they were lacking software. So they turned to Microsoft. Microsoft didn't have anything in stock. They bought it, they modified it, and so MS DOS came into existence. To cut a long story short, needless to say, uh, digital research, as in DR, copped onto the fact later on that this is a market, issued something called concurrent CPM, which was, never mind the market share, a great operating system compared to MSOS, because with CCPM you were able to run concurrent sessions all onto one computer. So you had true multitasking, multiprocessing on the command line then and there. Trouble is, was, it um, was a, it wasn't a commercial success. Yeah, was was it OS two that IBM tried to 
bring out themselves. That was yeah. much later because yeah, 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 then yeah. Uh, something called graphical user interfaces were all the rage. Mm. Microsoft came up with Windows 1.0, which essentially was a clumsy GUI yeah. on top of Microsoft, uh, on, on top mm -hmm. of MS DOS. Mm -hmm. DOS yeah. And not multitasking, capable, clumsy, bug-ridden to some extent, let's put it this way. Whereas um, IBM did something from the ground up, from a technology yeah. perspective, much more superior. In brackets, my, full disclosure, my perspective on things. True multitasking. I, I think that was a general <laughs> accepted... Um, full, dis uh, full disclosure, true multitasking and... Windows didn't even come close at the time. Multi-threading in the mid to late 80s, mm. out of the box. You could, of course, um, structure your application running on top of OS2 with multiple threads. Something that Windows wasn't even dreaming of at the time. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, although uh, the commercial success was somewhat limited, OS2 died a painful death during the yeah. 90s. Because nobody used it anymore. Um, Microsoft contributes to some of the code base, if, uh, as far as I can recall, at least the kernel. Yeah. Because the kernel essentially was um, something that came later into, into existence as something that Microsoft called new technology. Mm -hmm. What Essentially what they did is they brought in Cutler and friends um, to, do a, to do a real operating system, let's put it this way. So protect, protected address spaces, um, multiprocessing, and all the rest of it running on an Intel architecture. Uh, Cutler at the time already had much experiences having developed VMS. Hmm. And also some people of the original Mark III team joined Microsoft, Rick Rashford probably the being, being the best example. He led the Mark III team at CMU, and he was simply... I wouldn't say poached, but convinced to join Microsoft, moved then on to greater things, but he brought with him quite a few engineering folks who, under the technical supervision, or guidance, let's put it this way, of Cutler, developed something that would turn later into NT3.51, mm -hmm. um, which was the first commercially available uh, version of Windows NT. And we're uh, talking early 90s, mid-90s here, give or take. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, now, before we um, move on too far, uh, one one feature that I remember um, really well from uh, VMS, uh, which has has never been really <laughs> replicated in other, um, other operating systems out of the box, was the, uh, the file history, which was um, damn handy when you, when you needed it. Absolutely. As far as I can recall, you had certain VMS extensions, uh, MV, uh, MVS extensions, sorry, not VMS, but VMS yeah. supported this at the time out of the box, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, other yeah. than that, basically, you had, you had to rely on versioning systems on top of operating systems. That's correct, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. But coming back to, anyway. but coming back to my PhD before <laughs> yes, I conclude sorry. this discussion. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> yes. That was something. Yes, Martin, that was indeed. Okay. So the idea was basically you take in a, in a secured way, the, the operating system offers you certain tools, no, tools is the wrong word, certain mechanisms that you can then deploy being an application. So, for example, a real-time application um, just playing back an audio data stream has certain scheduling requirements in terms of a hard real-time. Mm -hmm. Sorry, in terms of a hard real-time requirement. So, if you yep. miss... A couple of micro, uh, of milliseconds, you will hear it actually in the audio stream. If you're changing to video, and I'm not talking about a container format now that has video and audio just embedded in it, but I'm just talking about a video data stream, it doesn't mm -hmm. make much of a difference if you miss a frame or two because yeah. the human eye will not perceive this. So mm -hmm. your scheduling and synchronization policies can be relaxed. This is just an example, um, but... Um, uh, Tigger and Friends, that was the name of the, of, of the experimental micro, um, um, microkernel architecture, offered essentially these mechanisms. And it did so using a mechanism called reflection in terms of you go from your base level to a meta level 
and then make a decision and then you go back to the base level and continue executing things mm -hmm. um something like small talk introduced kind of early mid 80s in terms of how you would allocate memory for example for a class small talk at the time already supported something called meta classes that would allow you to modify class behavior before you even instantiate an object. That was pretty advanced. Um, Japan, there, there, there were a couple of research teams in Japan who did something called, I think, Apertos. If I can find the links, you'll find it in no. the show notes. No, it's, 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 this is the first time I heard small talk mentioned since I was uh, in university. Yes, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's funny. Yeah, I mean, the... the, the, um, the, the um, yeah, the um, the aspects go or the fundamentals go back to the kind of early eighties. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, even early Lisp dialects include something similar to a meta class, if oh. memory serves correct. And you're talking about sixties, seventies, that sort of thing. Um, but then Lisp wasn't probably exactly well known outside certain circles. Indeed. Because these days, every Emacs user, of course, knows what Lisp is. And rightly so. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, okay. And with Tigger, as in with, with a PhD, I was in charge of A, designing and B, implementing the meta-level architecture. Funny enough, and James Gosling, if you're listening to this, no hard feelings, but if I ever should come across you again, you owe me a beer or two. If not more, um, because what Java and James probably would be the prime culprit here. What Java did when they defined something called the Reflection API as part of the JDK 1.5, mm -hmm. they took certain aspects more or less right away from the thesis and implemented this. And you're talking about a time span of about two to three years, give or take. I published a seminal book on the subject in 96 and it appeared in the JDK, I think, around, eight, around 98, 99, 97, something like this. Um, if I would have patented the IPs, and there we go back to Oracle, I probably would be sitting on a Caribbean island powered by Oracle. Given the history, unfortunately, I didn't. One of you, one of few mistakes in my life that I did, that I made. Fair enough, but James, if you listen to this, no hard feelings. Water on the bridge. Fair enough. <laughs> if I ever, I, I think I met the guy at a conference. I can't remember where, but anyway, it doesn't matter. If we meet again, never mind pandemia or not, you owe me a beer, if not more. Anyway, hmm. um, so that was the PhD, long and short, and that was my first kind of exposure in a bigger way than just compiling Emacs on on in um, using this as part of a project because we used Linux as the base operating system to develop and to QA the kernel as and test it but also used many open source projects on top of Linux to drive this. Initially we looked at Perl uh, for much of the QA framework but then we decided on something called Python which at the time had just been developed by by a guy called Guido von Rossum, um, if I understand this correctly, now an avid Rust contributor. Fair enough, Guido. <laughs> we all have to move on. That's okay. No worries. <laughs> never mind. Piv uh, never mind. Uh, Pep five seventy two or something. I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. doesn't matter. It's. it's um, I think we should mention this to him. Maybe he'll come on. The yes, Guido. Uh, <laughs> if if you were if if you're worrying about the details, if you're looking for the details, just check out the the two bumper episodes that we did on Python. The details are in there. Okay, anyway, doesn't matter. So that was my first brush with Python, and I've stuck with the language small as ever since, Rust or not. Um, as a matter of fact, much of the ecosystem driving Linux in laws, um, the bits you don't see when you go to the website, are written in Python. Mm. Um, 
but enough of that, um, the whole concept then, and it still does to me today, still appeals to me, uh, but early 90s, or mid 90s rather, the ecosystem was much less developed because we're talking about Python version 1. Instead of version 2 and version 3, pip, as in PyPy, wasn't even on the horizon then. But still, I found the, power, I found the language still powerful enough to drive this and to support us in that endeavor. In terms of getting an experimental microkernel architecture up and running, uh, full disclosure, that was an EU-funded project. Quite a few companies were part of the consortium. Um, for example, there were a couple of German um, game companies that were looking at the microkernel to deploy this as part of their gaming infrastructure. I'm not sure what came out of it because I left Trinity in '96. So maybe if you buy a German game from hmm. the likes of um, what's the name? What's the name of that of that Frankfurt developer Cryo or something? Exactly, Cryo Engine. Yeah, maybe underneath there's still a microkernel running done by Trinity. I can't. Uh, I I don't know. Simply, or maybe Cryo has done their own engine, and I'm just doing injustice to them. Anyway, long story short, um, if I'm game I may put in some pointers to research papers that are published, but um given the fact that this is not a, this is that this is not a Chris Zimmerman show as in terms of I have to keep my vanity in check, uh, I just may decide on not doing this that's mm -hmm. okay, but for those of you who cannot sleep at night, let me put the link to that um seminal textbook in the show notes so. Um, if you're still up at at 1 a.m., just read it and you'll be asleep in no time. No worries. <laughs> Would you like to expand uh, where the name Tigger came from as well? Um, all of the sub-projects had Disney names. Okay. Um, and Tigger being the metal architecture that I didn't implement it. It's there was an acronym for something no, else. Yeah. No, okay. it's not. No. Um, I'm trying and, to work it out. And, what that, mm, no, yeah, and Disney, if you're listening... <laughs> um, it never made it into commercial fruition as as the character, so don't even get the laws on the case. There's no point. Exactly. No, there's not. Um, we're talking about 25 years back. Do your numbers. Very good. Um, but but if you're so inclined, Martin is still looking for a Disney Plus subscription. So <laughs> if you're game, just send him the access code. Feel free, feel free. I'm sure the kids will appreciate it. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> okay, uh, um, given the fact that this was meant to be about 20 minutes. <laughs> yes. Um, yes, we are now are kind of touching about 50 minutes. I think this is time uh, to wrap this up, right? Yeah, otherwise we're going to... This is only halfway, really, right, isn't it? So, so that morning. was our road to open source, I think. It was, it was, yeah. It was, yes. So all that that needs to be done still is the feedback. The and feedback, we do have yes. some feedback, yes. We have feedback Brian, from... Brian Anka. writes in and saying... Brian. why? Sorry, Martin, you were saying? We have feedback from Brian and yes. Anuka. Um, go for it. Anuka, Ahuka, sorry, Ahuka. I always butchered mm. this name. So let's go through Ahuka first. You want to read this, Martin? Sure. So, comment by Ahuka on uh, episode number 12. Excellent interview. I really enjoyed the interview with Randall Swartz. More of this would be great. So, thank you, Ahuka. Ahuka. Yeah, Ahuka, thank you very much. And also, full credit, um, because it's the Ahuka from Hacker Public Radio uh, that does all these wonderful GIMP episodes. I'm sure, Martin, you have listened to them, right? I am. I am. I've, uh, not all of them, but uh, yeah, it's a very handy, handy a bit of... Um, Yes. Intro to GIMP, if you're not. I, yes, I especially like the the episode on the time warp um, operator. I, I like sorry, the plugin, plugin. Yes, sorry. Episode on the um, t-shirt making activity. Uh, yes, uh, I hope <laughs> I really like this because apparently it allows you to draw an image in GIMP in the past. That's excellent. <laughs> anyway, let's not get distracted <laughs> by this. Ahuka, sorry. Uh, yeah, uh, we do deserve the right. Uh, sorry, we do reserve the right, not deserve, but reserve the right to take, uh, yeah, to make fun at 
uh, at certain um, um, feedback. That doesn't mean that we don't love feedback. It's just basically a matter of uh, uh, making that ma making the show a little bit lively. And but Ahoka, of course, your feedback is welcome. And yes, we do appreciate the work on GIMP. Welcome and appreciate it. Feedback. Yes, indeed. Yes. So another um, chap wrote in called Brian. Let me read this out. Um, subject is Merlin, and the feedback is why did you not uh, why did you not ask Randall? For those of your audience that don't participate in Twitter, could you summarize what happened at Frost Weekly and what looked like a hostile takeover of the show? Uh, that's the quote in the feedback. Uh, quote, um, uh, end of quote, you missed an opportunity because Dan Lynch won't talk. I emailed him and I can't find his blog Twitter post that explains Liu showing Randall the door. If there is a link to this, please put it in the show notes from Brian in Ohio. Brian, first of all, thank you very much for the comment, but you are maybe right that the perception may be a different one from the outside. Um, Randall, in preparation of the show, Randall and, and the two of us spoke, um, be, what, would, what we should basically cover and what we shouldn't cover. And Randall was quite, I wouldn't say clear, but, but Randall said that the separation between him and Twit was mutual and was also done in a friendly way. You can actually see this if you take a look at a post that Leo put on, I think, the Twitter, uh, on, on the, on the, tw uh, on the uh, Twitter blog. Uh, you'll find the link, of course, in the show in notes. Show notes, indeed. Yes, <clears throat> where actually thanks, Randall, for, I think, 10 years of service, uh, of service or something like this. So clearly, um, it's not a hostile takeover of Doc Searles running Floss Weekly. It's just a matter of changing hosts, and that's exactly what happened. Um, but as I said, the, the departure was quite friendly, at least according to, to that blog post that Leo did. Um, Dan Lynch, I don't know. He's still active. Um, spoke to him a while back. Uh, well, we, um, as in the in-laws, have learned a great, uh, a grateful mm. lot of yeah, the outlaws because yeah. this is basically, of course, as as may as most of our listeners may or may not know, Dan Lynch and Fab Scherchel were the original hosts of something called Linux Outlaws that we simply. Um, took as an inspiration for this show, as in the Linux and Laws, uh, by saying that we are more than happy to continue the legacy, only slightly tweaked. Only a little bit. Only a little bit, yeah. And before <laughs> I forget, yes, that was the feedback. So, yes, feedback yes. is welcome. Um, you can send us feedback uh, by simply mailing to feedback. Or commenting on the yes, I was just about HPR feed. Yes, always two options. Um, the two options, the indeed. Yeah. The mail address for feedback is feedback at linuxillaws.eu. And you simply can enter a comment on the corresponding episode on Hacker Public Radio. goes without saying. Um, yeah, okay, one thing, Martin. Accounts mm. got in touch before I forget. Something a little bit on, on, the, on the internal side of Linux in Laws. But um, Evelyn from Accounts got in touch. And she wasn't happy that, that apparently you tried to expense an escort service once again. Well, it's not, I'm, it's not my job Martin, to keep Martin, accounts happy. Also. Martin, 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 sorry, we <laughs> spoke about this, right? You cannot expense escort services. Ah, I see. I, I was taking an example from your, uh, your, your nurses episode. But, there um, is no nurses episode. This is just make believe, <laughs> right? This is, this is to be continued, uh, dear listeners. Um, I'm, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just looking at the receipt here, Martin, that you filed with the expense claim, and it spoke. I mean. 500 quids for special services? Are you joking me? Was it special worth it? Special services, yeah. Well, the SAS, yeah. They, um, they're obviously required for certain duties. <laughs> no, I'm talking about the escort bill. <laughs> oh, I need escorting through the airports, yeah. Um, for my personal safety. Hang on, there's a, there's, a, there's a QR code on this. Let me go to the website, basically, because the invoice only speaks about special services. <laughs> Martin. 500 quid? Great. <laughs> um, obviously, because although this podcast is explicit, I cannot really read out loud what's on the, what's on the webpage that I'm looking at. Okay, Martin, uh, for future reference, we do have a corporate account at an escort service it's called Rainbow Escorts. It we may do. not be as fancy as the one you <laughs> used, 
Bruts. <laughs> this is the one you set up. <laughs> just, just use, just you could have use told me about <laughs> They have a corporate account with us. Oh, this sorry, is, we have a corporate account our, with them. Rather, account is at the current <laughs> level. Is it? <laughs> Just basically use Rainbow Escorts. That'll do the trick nicely, Martin. Don't try to expense other escort services because in that case it's official because you have to put it through through claims, whereas you simply go to, <laughs> to Rainbow Escorts, put um, and make an appointment on the website, and then we do it differently. Okay? I see. I see. Perfect. No, I'll, I'll consider this. Talking about bank accounts, um, apparently the Rust Project needs a bank account as well. Uh, do they? Why? Because they want to start a foundation. Indeed. Um, they, okay. Foundations yes. need bank accounts. So, uh, people, if you have surplus money sitting around, <laughs> lying on the sofa or something, uh, check out the blog post on, on rust-lang.org. Um, yes, they are the, um, the employees, uh, the, the, the core community, <coughs> in, co in collaboration, I think, with um, the Mozilla Foundation, or what's left of it, want to start a Rust-Lang foundation, as in a foundation looking after the development and uh, maybe also marketing of a programming language called Rust. More on that in the next episode. Indeed. Or... The one after, depending. No, it's the next one, first September. Yes, but this is not fifteen, but rather sixteen. Uh, sorry, this is fifteen, not fourteen. Not fourteen. This is episode thirteen, Martin. <coughs> yes. Next 14, one will be fourteen is will. worse than Python and Co. No, that would be fifteen because fourteen will be about IT security, where Martin will explain to us ah, all these no, wonderful no, 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 IT no. security things. No, 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 no. Incorrect. Incorrect. Why? Um, <laughs> no, no, this is 13. 14 is Correct. the first September Rust Python thing. Then we have ID security. And then we have Nextcloud. Aha. I thought we would do it the other way around. Anyway, <laughs> for the upcoming <laughs> episodes, people, you, we will cover, <laughs> yes, we will cover the great battle between Rust, C++, maybe, and of course Python. Um, we may post this as an episode 14. <laughs> <laughs> it will be an episode of a certain after, number. Yes, after that we have lined up um, a show on IT security where Martin will, sh will basically show us how to um, not file expense claims for escort services, but rather do it in a different way. Um, and of course, uh, also we have lined up Frank Harlicek and other guys. Um, Frank Harlicek, of course, of Nextcloud fame. Uh, so it's going to be a little bit, a little bit of a bumper uh, autumn for Linus in-laws, and of course we plan to do a Halloween special, mm. meaning we gonna um, we gonna answer all your questions that you have. As long as they're scary, um, yeah, um, we're not we're not gonna <laughs> we're not going to answer <laughs> unscary questions. Sorry. So if you send us in questions, please ensure that they at least sound scary. Whether they have to be or not is a different story, but. Just make it sound like they are scary. So um, instead of saying, "Now look, um, what happens if I if I if I if I assign zero to a variable and then use that variable as a pointer for for for, for variable access?" As in, I'm trying to get um, um, a value from address zero with, that normally results in a segmentation fault on, on Linux. Just say, "Why did the world stop because my app was crashing because of a simple pointer problem?" Um, that will ensure that you get past um, the guards, especially yep. um, the ones called Martin Visser. <laughs> okay, guys, uh, that's all for episode Martin. Which episode is it? Currently on 13. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent. Uh, next one will be 14. That's all, yes, that's all for episode 13. <laughs> As usual, you can find us on Thanks, Hacker Public buddy. Radio. Yes, and of course, we do have a Google podcast Ooh, feed yes, now. We yes, we do. We do. We do. Martin, you want to talk about this before we wrap, the before we wrap up the show? Yes, uh, our RSS feed is up and we are on Google Podcasts. In yes, case you yes, can't, yes. cannot find Hacker Public Radio. And thanks to, yeah, and thanks to Martin uh, for writing the Python code behind the RSS magic. Um, was it this was some existing <laughs> bits of uh, code you nicked from somewhere. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> this is, of course, the great philosophy behind open source. You just steal somebody else's code and just hope it works. <laughs> Well, okay. uh, pro probably fix it is more <laughs> like it, isn't it? Any, anyway, now you find yeah. us on, on Google Podcasts. We are also in the app. Simply type in Linux in-laws and then you sub can subscribe to the show. 
Uh, we are Naka Public Radio and will be for the time being. Should we change this, you'll be the first to know uh, on this particular show here, as in we will announce it here first. Um, um, but until such time, we would like to thank Hacker Public Radio. Mm. Ken and friends, you're doing, you're doing an excellent job and continue and keep up the good work. And that's all for episode 13. 13. Bye, people. Bye-bye. This podcast is licensed under the latest version of the Creative Commons license, Type attribution share alike. Credits for the intro music go to Blue Sea Roosters for their song Salute Margaret, to Twin Flames for their piece called The Flow used for the segment intros, and finally to Celestial Ground for their song Sweet Justice used by the Dark Side. You find these and other ditties licensed under CC at Chimando, a website dedicated to liberate the music industry from choking copyright legislation and other crap concepts. You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.